0: This episode of The Outside Podcast is brought to you by The North Face, and its new Ventrix jacket, a go-anywhere layer that adapts to you as you warm up and cool off. Now, it's common knowledge that layering is the key to staying comfortable in the outdoors, but what people don't talk about is that it's also a total drag. A few years ago, I did a 10-day crossing of Yellowstone National Park, and we saw every kind of weather you could think of, practically all at once. If we were standing still, it was too cold for a t-shirt. If we were moving, it was too hot for a jacket. So we were constantly taking off layers and putting them back on. As a group, there would actually be this weird accordion effect, where one person would stop to drop a layer, but then while they were stopped, another person would get cold and add one. It made so that we could effectively walk all morning without going anywhere. But with the all-new Ventrix jacket, it doesn't have to be this way. The Ventrix feels like a puffy down coat when you're cold. But then as you warm up, it has unique perforations and dynamic venting in key areas that expand to dump your body heat. It's also very light and durable, with reinforced fabric in the places that are more likely to wear out. It's not the only coat you'll ever need, but it's the only one that works with you so you stay warm, but not too warm, no matter what. And that means on a climb or a hike or a chilly morning backpacking trip, you're going to spend more time moving and going, and less time stopping to change your clothes. The Ventrix just makes being outside more comfortable, a lot less work, a lot more fun. From Outside Magazine and PRX, this is the Outside Interview.
1: I'm just going to test your guys' mics. With Chris Kass. I want to talk for just
0: a second about Usain Bolt. Or rather, I want to talk about what we're really talking about when Usain Bolt comes up.
1: He's off. He can run a bend. We know that he's up. At least
0: for me, watching him run was one of the unmissable things about the last few Olympics. He was just dominating the competition, like he was running in a different race. And it felt like the kind of thing that we might not see again in our lifetime. So far in this mini series on human performance, we've looked at things that are going to help you get to your peak performance nutrition, lifestyle, your mental game, sleep. But when I think of Usain Bolt, I see someone who has maxed out all of those variables and competes against people who are similarly limited mostly by their own genetic code. So that's what we're looking at today. This idea came from a piece I read in the magazine Nautilus about Usain Bolt and every other once in a generation athlete that comes along. Shaquille O'Neal, Bo Jackson, Michael Phelps. The people who force professional sports leagues to change rules to keep it competitive.
2: I don't want to reduce all of sport or all of human activity to genetics. I mean, it sounds sometimes when people talk to me, they think they come away with that impression. But of course, that's just because that's the particular area of science that I work on a little bit.
0: So we called up the author of the piece, Steve Shu at Michigan State University.
2: For the genetic part of it, it's pretty clear that since very few people are actually seven feet tall, uh, the NBA is actually selecting for or searching for people who are outliers in terms of their genetic makeup.
0: Take Shaq. Seven foot one, three hundred pounds, but without the normal coordination issues of an n b a center who were traditionally actually kind of gangly with a really high center of gravity,
2: so Shaq was very different. If you scale Shaq down to be six feet tall, he would be like a two hundred pound running back or cornerback uh and so he just has a different build, but he's seven feet tall and weighs three hundred pounds and also is still explosive and coordinated and and you know and had had actually a pretty good passing game so I tend to focus on him as a particular example of a genetic freak. But you could also talk about Herschel Walker or Bo Jackson, or you could talk about LeBron James. They're all people who clearly, in addition to everything else they have, they have very unusual genetic gifts. Hsu's
0: article is titled, We Are Nowhere Close to the Limits of Human Performance. And in it, he makes the case that while professional sports are pretty good at filtering for genetic outliers, the basic elements of the process are still random. Our DNA is so complex that it would take more humans than have ever lived to randomly produce just one person with the single best genetic code for a certain sport. But that might all be changing, because the process of genetic variation is becoming less and less random. As scientists gather genetic data and plot the genomes of more and more people, we're figuring out which parts of our DNA influence which physical traits, and we're starting to figure out ways to manipulate them.
2: All of these things eventually are going to be deciphered. And at the same time that these kind of informatical or computational tools are brought to bear, we also are developing better and better gene editing tools.
0: The most famous of these gene editing tools is called CRISPR, which, if you haven't heard of it, is basically a DNA sequence in bacteria that helps fend off attacking viruses. What it does is, as the virus is attacking, CRISPR cells go in and chop up the DNA of that virus to kill it. It's kind of like how our immune system adapts to new illnesses, except instead of the host adapting to the attacker, in this case, the host changes the attacker. And now, very long story short, we figured out how to program CRISPR cells to make modifications to any DNA that they come in contact with. It's a tool, like a sewing machine for genetic code. So in a very basic sense, if we knew the code for that ultimate athlete, we could make him. We just need to know what that code is. And we're also working on that.
2: I think we're going to see some incredible stuff in the in the far flung future. I mean, if you think about it, uh, if you if you were a sports fan from let's go back a hundred years, so 1917, you grab some sports fan from 1917 and you bring them to today to watch the Olympics or watch the NFL, they wouldn't be able to believe it. They couldn't imagine that a 300 pound guy could be that quick or that fast or have like five percent body fat. I mean, just uh, it would just be mind blowing to them.
0: It goes without saying that we're not there yet. We're not breeding superhumans from scratch. But recently, contributing editor Rowan Jacobson got curious about where are we right now in this whole process? What can we manipulate? And how do we do it? And what he found out is that we're not as far away from athletes improving their performance by altering their genes as you might imagine. And it might not be lab coat scientists like Shu working in cutting-edge facilities who get us there. In fact, earlier this year, Rowan found a guy who was literally trying to bring genetic engineering to the masses. This guy wants you and me to be able to change our own genetic code. At its best, this would mean curing ourselves of diseases, and becoming healthier, faster, stronger athletes. At worst, we'd basically be giving ourselves cancer. Rowan's article appeared in the September issue of Outside, but there have been pretty interesting developments since then, and he recently sat down with Chris Kyes to talk through the story. And what's happened since it came out?
1: Great. Uh, well, so your story in the September issue of Outside focused on genetic engineering. And how much did you know about this topic going in?
3: I had actually started to pay attention to it uh, from an earlier piece that I did for Outside on a, a burger that was a vegetarian burger, but was using some high tech techniques to mimic meat. Mm-hmm. And that was when I first started um, realizing that genetic engineering had gotten a lot more sophisticated and a lot easier to do than I had had any clue as as you know a typical crunchy Vermonter uh, (laughs) left-wing sustainable food advocate so um, it fascinated me it scared me a little bit and and I started paying more attention to it and when I once I realized that um, really the technology had broken wide open because of, of a few advances. Then I thought, about, wow, there's like a big story to tell here.
1: Yeah, and what what were, what were some of those advances that were a br- breakthrough for this?
3: So the thing that um, the the thing that people don't really realize they hear a lot about CRISPR and stuff like that, but the basic thing that's changed is that the the cost and speed of both sequencing DNA, so basically reading the code of any organism, and synthesizing DNA, so writing that code, have both become really cheap and really fast and easy to do. So just within the past couple of years, we can suddenly read the code of life and write the code of life. And we still don't really understand much about what to do with that, but, but we're learning fast.
1: Yeah, and one of the things you write is, like most of us, I think you would assume that even if you were aware of the kind of implications of of these technologies, you, you'd still assume that most of it was, you know, behind the locked doors of multi-billion dollar labs. And this story is uh, showing that that's not the case at all. So tell us about your main character, Josiah Zainer. Started up
3: this from some of the other cultures. And oh, he did. And started up these. So
1: Can you describe who he is and what he does?
3: Sure, so yeah, Josiah was the person uh, that I found. When I found Josiah, I realized, wow, th- this really has changed. It's not just the Monsantos of the world. Um, or the DuPonts who are doing genetic engineering. Uh, Josiah is a guy who, he got his PhD in biotech, then had a fellowship working at NASA. He's a bit of a malcontent, He, he hates authority, so he didn't last long at NASA. He broke free, and with what he had learned about how cheap and easy it was to engineer organisms, he started this company called the ODIN, which stands for Open Discovery Institute and started selling CRISPR kits online and other, um, you know, DIY genetic engineering kits and yeah, so, freaked everybody out.
1: Yeah. So what are some of the things that he sells? What is a CRISPR kit?
3: So the, this is, um, it's, it's all the things you need. I, um, we refer to it in the article as like the easy bake oven of genetic engineering. So you order it and you get all the, the liquids and tools you need right. to mix up a batch of your own genetically engineered microbes. So you can you take an e. coli or a yeast and literally change its genetic code with this little little CRISPR molecule that's included in the kit and make it do something that it wouldn't otherwise be able to do.
1: And you guys did you guys did some experiments together. Can you describe some of those?
3: Sure. we did. yeah, we did some fun stuff. So there's um there this jellyfish have a gene um, called uh, GFP. Glowing fluorescent, uh, a green fluorescent protein. So the um, the GFP gene should be already be in that yeast, right?
0: Yeah. So I actually stopped by yesterday.
3: Um, it's like that glowing green color that you see in jellyfish okay. and some other uh, sea creatures. And so we took just the the code that codes for that green jellyfish protein, and inserted it into the regular kind of yeast that you used to brew beer, and then brewed beer uh, with that, where the yeast had that green protein in it. So as the yeast is proliferating and eating the sugar and turning it into alcohol, the whole thing is glowing green. And then we drank it, and uh, it tasted like really crappy homebrew. But, um,
1: okay, just to clarify what Rowan is saying here, because it's really important to understand everything that comes next. He's saying that they took CRISPR cells that had been programmed to mimic the part of the jellyfish that glows green, and they mixed it up with yeast, the kind you'd otherwise use to brew beer. And after a day or so, just sitting in the Petri dish or beaker, that yeast had taken on the properties of the jellyfish. There's no special equipment. It's as simple as physically mixing the DNA together with the right CRISPR cells.
3: So if you know, now that we can print DNA, if you know the code for a protein, you can literally just type it into a computer and have one of these uh, companies that prints DNA print it out for you and send it to you. So you get a little test tube with liquid in it, and inside that liquid is your gene that has been printed, but it's real. It's just as real as if you'd taken the gene from the organism. Then you use CRISPR or one of these other techniques that takes that gene and inserts it into whatever um, organism's DNA that you want it to go into.
1: Well, as you say, so what does that marketplace look like in terms of purchasing genes? Like, how, how much does a gene cost? And it's, it's essentially every gene have a code that's um, been identified that you can buy at this point?
3: We, they're now, yeah, there's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of genes out there that you can buy. You can just go through databases online. And you don't even actually need to know the code anymore. Um, Kind of like with computer software, you don't need to know the zeros and the ones. You just buy the plugin. Mm-hmm. So you you literally just like type the name of the gene you want into a d- database on one of these online sites, and they will print out that gene for you and send it to you. Um, and it's it's gotten shockingly cheap. It's uh, the going rate for for a gene is sixty five bucks now, and I believe that includes shipping. I'm not sure, but <laughs> it's. Um, it's not prohibitive for anybody in their garage to be doing this stuff now.
1: Wow! And so you guys make the glowing beer, and then you you have a little bit of hesitation about trying this stuff. And he's like, "Oh no, no, no! It's no worries. I've actually injected this into myself." So he he actually tried to genetically engineer himself with the uh, the glowing jellyfish. Is that right?
3: Yeah, he took he injected um, the glowing jellyfish genes into his uh, muscle cells, basically, skin cells. And when that cell divides and copies everything to the next cell, it will also copy that jellyfish gene into the next cell for a while, until then the, the, it kind of breaks down after a while. But then, um, so two days ago, I just found this out um, yesterday, actually. He, uh, he took the next step um, in terms of do-it-yourself human CRISPR editing, where he actually one thing we wrote about in, in the article is how um, th- there's a lot of um, suspicion out there that people are gene-doping and knocking out their myostatin gene, which is a gene that inhibits muscle growth. Uh, there are,
1: the best there way to understand myostatin is to think about how you have a gene for turning on muscle growth. So you also have something that turns it off. That's myostatin. It limits the growth of muscle tissue. So if you turn it off, where you have myostatin deficiency... Your muscles keep growing, and you look like you came out of some sort of so comic I'm, book. And controlling this kind of thing could actually be a huge help to people suffering from muscular dystrophy well, and other as degenerative as ago, diseases. But Olympics. naturally, it's also interesting to athletes and soldiers and, and anyone looking for an edge. So, you can, can you find this? Can you buy this genetic mu- mutation and inject it yourself into yourself?
3: Well, as of two days ago, you can from Zayner's uh, website. He he just, and, and I think this, is, he, he's, he's, I kind of think of him as, as much as like a body artist or a performance artist as a scientist and he's kind of looking for, to like, you know, provoke the authorities and I think this might be the thing that does it because he is selling for 20 bucks off his site, you can buy um, a CRISPR, a human CRISPR kit for knocking out your myostatin gene.
1: And did he inject himself with that?
3: He did, so he gave this talk at a big conference in San Francisco two days ago. He live-streamed this on Facebook so you can go watch it.
0: UV light is modifying your genome when you're out there. You know, nobody complains about those off-target effects.
3: And he handed everyone one of these little CRISPR, uh, just a little test tube with this CRISPR human uh, editing Gene in it when they came in and he gave the talk and then some of the audience sort of called him on and said well if it's this easy why haven't you done it?
0: Are you are you, uh, are you suggesting maybe I should try it?
3: And maybe this was a setup because then he said you know what you're uh, right, right. reached do down, <laughs> grabbed a needle, loaded it up with the stuff and injected it into his arm.
1: Ooh!
0: Didn't actually hurt
3: that much. But so for him whatever um whatever muscle cells right, there we go. that crispr comes in contact with <laughs> it will or a certain percentage of them it will know, change like the genome it'll knock out that myostatin gene
1: oh hurts a lot more going in
3: so this is this is where it gets All into right, like do not do this at home stuff because <laughs> the, he literally is changing his genome his, his in in the cells that he's hitting with this crispr thing um so you don't, obviously you don't want to be like messing with your DNA because things can go wrong, but um, he did it. I'll, I'll let you know how it works out. <laughs>
1: the problem with this kind of thing, however, is that at this stage you'd have to get the CRISPR cells to physically touch every piece of DNA that they're going to change. So you'd have to inject every inch or every centimeter of the muscle you want to grow super big. If you wanted to turn off myostatin in your whole body, you'd need to inject the CRISPR cells before that body grows. When you're just an embryo. Well, and, and presumably this is this is you know this is new science, so we're not far from where you know we get around that problem. And CRISPR is, I guess, more efficient at, at spreading throughout the entire body.
3: Exactly, and they're figuring that out now. It, it works really well. Delivery is is the challenge, um, but it works really well for certain things. Like they're now they just approved the first therapy. Last month, um, to use CRISPR to engineer the immune system to eliminate uh, certain leukemia and lymphoma cancers, uh, which is huge breakthrough.
1: Hmm. Let's get back to a little bit about athletes. You you had asked him in the story, you know, do you think that there will be a day when athletes are are doing this stuff at, at home? And he says, "Dude, this is this is already happening." Um, do you have any kind of sense of, of how this is, um, being applied in sports already or how it will be soon?
3: Um, all I know is that the researchers, researchers have done a lot of this stuff with mice and they've had a lot of success increasing, um, mouse endurance to like scary levels like mice by changing their EPO gene or their, uh, growth factor gene, um, or a couple other genes where basically the mice will just run all day and not get tired. They'll just like go crazy on their treadmills and never get tired. And, um, when you look at their cells, their cells actually have, um, like better mitochondria in there, more mitochondria, which are the, the power plants of the cells. They're really, um, just like becoming these super, super buffs, like ultra marathoner mice. Um, so that kind of thing would be, th- those researchers who are doing that um, research are getting barraged um, by, you know, requests from athletes. So whether it's gone beyond that, that, that's where it's really hard to track.
1: What do we have to be concerned about that? If, if, what are the downsides of doing that if,
3: if, if it comes around? Once we can start really yeah, playing around with our own let's genes? Say,
1: yeah, let's say I can't really, uh, like those mice, um, I would have an opportunity to increase my endurance, you know. A hundredfold or whatever it may be, well, why wouldn't I want that?
3: Yeah, right. Exactly. It's super tempting. Um, what one thing we know about genes is that very few of them do just one thing. Their um, interactions are incredibly complex, which is why, like everyone thinks, oh, well, can't we just edit the genes for intelligence and make us smarter? It doesn't work that way. There's probably like twenty thousand genes that play some role in intelligence by working together. So um, we could clearly edit a gene that would improve our endurance or that would give us the same version of that gene that you know, ultra marathoners tend to have. Um, what else does that gene do? What, by changing one thing, we're probably changing three or four other things that we don't even know yet. So mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of like exponential complexity of it is something that is gonna take a lot longer to figure out and be able to predict.
1: And has anybody has anybody died as a result of some of this?
3: There were some people who died um, from earlier gene therapy um, tests. Back in, like, 1999, I think was the first one. There, there was a famous case. An a 18-year-old named Jesse uh, Gelsinger died because, um, like, the the, the the gene therapy kind of went out of control. It there, there was an immune therapy thing. They were, like, boosting his... Uh, Immune system, and when you boost the immune system, you can get this massive, um, you know, attack on the body itself, um, and that's still a problem. Even the, these gene therapies that were just approved tend to—they kill the cancer, but then they keep going, and they—and they, you know, you get a, a, an aggressive autoimmune response, and mm. you can get a coma. You, um, you get huge fevers, so um, it. People have died, and. Before a lot of these, um, you know, clinical trials will get approved, they'll have to figure out better ways to, c- to, calm down the system once they have engineered it to be like kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> but but they're making progress on that.
1: Yeah yeah. These aren't. There's nothing illegal about doing that in the human at this point.
3: There isn't. There's the 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 regulation is lagging way behind the technology because this all has happened much faster than anyone was ready for. So you can genetically engineer yourself. Uh, You can genetically engineer your friend. You can't sell your friend once you've genetically engineered your friend, but as long as you don't try a commercial application, you can do whatever you want.
1: Wow. So you had said, you mentioned that Zaner is a bit of a provocateur and that what he's doing with the myostatin um, might provoke the authorities to, to step in. Like, is that something that he wants? What What, what is he trying to, what message is he trying to send by doing that?
3: That's a really good question. Um, I've asked myself that. Like, w- what, what drives him? Um, he clearly hates authority for whatever reason. He hates people who have had hard lives or have not had certain advantages in life being told what to do or being prevented from doing certain things. Um, so he he definitely wants anyone out there to to feel like they can take control over their own lives. And I think for him, being able to take charge of your genes is kind of like the ultimate way of taking charge of your life in a way. Hmm. So I think that's what drives him. But he really is looking for the, the confrontation. Um, like he keeps pushing it one step further. Um, and it's interesting, like after we wrote a, about him in the outside piece and you know he like he hadn't been talking about do chain playing around with with Miles or EPO or anything before that but, but we wrote about that in outside and I, he picked up on that and so that's then what he's doing this week so it's um it's interesting he he's got some I, these new ideas and now he's going to run with them i think <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you mentioned the regulation is far behind is there um is there a large group out there that is uh, adamantly opposed to what the zainers of the world are doing? Are, and and uh, related to that, are there a lot of other zainers out there?
3: There aren't any zainers quite as zany as zainer, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but uh, there are. There's definitely lots of people um, playing around with different uh, different stuff. Outside of the uh, of any sort of jurisdiction or, or or official institution, there's a guy in Mississippi who's been editing his. He's a dog breeder, and he's been editing his Dalmatians to try to get rid of certain um, diseases, hereditary diseases in Dalmatians. Uh, there's a guy in New York who's been plant, like developed a blue rose by using a. a gene from a giant clam that that is intensely blue and inserting it into the rose. So there's a a couple people like that doing stuff that doesn't quite make you like queasy the way the stuff that Zayner is doing Mm -hmm. um, does, but but pretty sophisticated stuff. Uh, But then, yeah, in terms of who's opposed to it, a lot of people are opposed to it um, for obvious reasons just because it just feels creepy. But then where people really... um, worry is when you, you go to that embryonic stage where you're, because that's actually where it's easiest to do because you don't have any delivery issues. If you've got a single-celled embryo and you any ch- gene changes you make to that embryo will be true for the life of that organism and all of that organism's uh, children. So that's when you get into the designer baby uh, issue. And there are a lot of nonprofits who, who are, are um, advocating for a very strong line in the sand about editing humans in any way because of that.
1: So to boil it all down, we have the ability right now to edit our own DNA. If we could figure out the super soldier or super athlete code, we could just inject that into an embryo and give a baby and its offspring perfect genes. This would, of course, raise a whole lot of ethical issues because this is not something that the kid could choose for itself. And these issues have been thoroughly explored in science fiction but people in the real world are just starting to argue about them. For you and me, if we could figure out how to deliver CRISPR cells to our whole body, we could actually modify our own genetics. But that's a big hurdle, and we don't know what the unintended consequences might be. Josiah Zaner tends to play them down. But in some ways, this world is so wide open that anyone who experiments with this stuff would be in the position of that innocent kid whose genes are delivered via CRISPR cells who doesn't get to choose their own fate. So I'm curious what your own takeaway was after spending time with him. Were were you terrified by the fact that this is going on?
3: Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Um I w you know, honestly, a part of me is totally fascinated by it. It's um this is going to sound weird, but it's it, it's a like a beautiful new art form in a way. Like it's this living art. Um and you know, you can make ugly art, you can make beautiful art, but it's um It's like this whole new creative space, and that fascinates me. But I'm also, like, I don't even take aspirin. I'm so anti, (laughs) like, putting anything foreign in my body. So part of my attraction to it is just the pure horror of it, of, like, editing, changing your genes is, is about the scariest thing I can think of. So, yeah, for me, it's like a horror movie.
1: Well, it's a brave new world. I'm just fascinated by this stuff. But thanks a lot for talking to
3: me. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: Chris Kays in conversation with Rowan Jacobson. Rowan is a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT. You can find this article online. It's called "Hacking Your Genes Has Never Been Easier." Josiah Zayner's Facebook Live video was filmed October third. We're releasing this episode on October thirty-first. So far, he hasn't been contacted by any of the authorities. He may or may not have been trying to provoke. This episode was brought to you by The North Face, and its new Ventrix jacket, which works when you do to keep you cool. This piece was produced by me and Chris Kies, with Robbie Carver and help from Cynthia Graber in Boston. The Outside Podcast is a production of Outside Magazine and PRX.